Welcome to the Keep Cool Show, the podcast in which we cover how cutting-edge climate technologies connect to the world in which we live. I'm your host, Nick Van Osdall. But the fact remains that it's going to take many years to fully decarbonize the economy. And even then, some emissions will be very difficult to abate. And there's still going to be excess greenhouse gases in the atmosphere based on emissions that have occurred to date. So the value of the carbon market, in my view, is an efficient means to channel private capital into projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere while we work to decarbonize the economy. From the perspective of drone seed, we want to do as much climate resilient reforestation as we can. And that's expensive. And the voluntary carbon market is the only means to finance that at scale. And that's why it's of interest to us. All right, Jonathan, welcome to the Keep Cool Show. It's great to have you. Thank you, Nick. I, I'm uh, pleased to be here and appreciate the interest in, in what we're doing. Fantastic. Yeah. So to get folks up to speed, I've certainly been aware of what Drone Seed is up to for a while myself, but some folks listening in might not be. What's the quick download on you know Drone Seed's business and, and vision? Yeah. But very simply, we are a reforestation company. Our mission is to make reforestation scalable mm. to mitigate the worst effects of climate change. We're scaling reforestation by building a vertically integrated supply chain. And that starts with collecting wild seed, and it ends with planting seedlings and aerial seeding by drones. Forest generally, and reforestation specifically, is the best technology we have ready today to remove and store carbon from the atmosphere at scale and at relatively low costs. Mm. So drone seed is directing uh, this reforestation supply chain that we've built towards replanting forests after catastrophic wildfire. And mm. we're financing that reforestation activity using forward-looking carbon offsets. Got it. Love it. A lot of really good stuff in there. Lots of trailheads for us to work off of. And a really powerful argument there at the end that I'll want to dig into too. Before we get too far into technology, business, all that, you know, let's just talk about reforestation kind of at a higher level, because I know that that's an area that you've spent a lot of time in in your career. I think when people hear this, you know, it calls to mind a lot of different things. You know, planting trees is something that we've talked about for a long time as a helpful thing and a helpful climate solution, but also certainly some controversy in recent years where, you know, people are talking about all these other climate technologies. And I think times like forestry has kind of fallen by the wayside or even gotten a bad rap at times as kind of being like the easiest thing to do. I know that I introduced perhaps a couple different topics and questions in there myself, but you know, what's your experience in reforestation and forestry been like? And uh, yeah, maybe we can use that as a jumping off point for talking about drone seed more. Yeah, well, I'll give you the intro on me and sort of how I came to drone seed and, and how I think it fits in within the spectrum of approaches around carbon removal. So I'm a forester by training, a long-time tree guy. I spent my career working at the intersection of forests, policy, and markets. And my work has been shaped by this question of how do we manage forests for multiple values, for durable wood products, water, biodiversity, recreation, and increasingly, and very relevant to this conversation today, managing forests for carbon removal and climate impact. So I came to Drone Seed for the opportunity to make non-incremental impact on climate by scaling reforestation and scaling carbon removal. 
Along the way, I spent some time working on public policy. I worked for a member of the U.S. House Natural Resources Committee for the U.S. Forest Service. I worked in the industrial sector for Weyerhaeuser, which is a very large timber and forest products company. And then most recently, I was at a global timberland manager called New Forests, working on investments in the California compliance carbon market. Got it. Understood. And what have some of these, you know, other places that you've worked, like, what is the traditional kind of model of thinking about forestry and reforestation look like? And, you know, I think maybe that's a good lead into the how drone seeds doing something pretty different using the voluntary carbon markets as a kind of impetus and incentive to scale reforestation. But I'm just curious, like other places that you've worked, like how do folks try to promote and accelerate good forestry habits? Or how has that been something that people have talked about and tried to promote in the past? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think the the primary mode of reforestation in the U.S. has been driven by a demand for lumber, for logs and lumber. So in the key wood basket areas of the country, like the Pacific Northwest or the Southeast, you can replant a forest and have an expectation that you're going to make your money back on a net present value basis, use a financial term, when you harvest that timber some decades in the future. Timber harvest, until recently, was really the only value you could extract from most forests. Mm. And in many forests, uh, including forests in California, the Intermountain West, the hardwood regions of the North, there was very little opportunity for timber harvest. Mm -hmm. So if a forest burned down, if a forest was damaged by a windstorm, by insect infestation, there was really Mm. uh, no financial incentive to replant that forest. And in this era of increasing severity and scale of wildfires, where we're seeing 7 million acres on average a year burn, uh, vanishingly small amount that, of that being replanting, we are losing forests at a faster rate at a time when we need forests more than ever for their carbon removal and carbon storage capacity. And that's where the voluntary carbon market comes in. Yeah, so we've seen this year, especially, I think, you know, hundreds of millions of dollars, even billions of dollars from pretty traditional financial players even pouring into forestry assets in the US because there is this recognition that, you know, suddenly there is a new way to make a financial return on owning and preserving. And in some cases, I'm sure also reforesting forests. So for people that aren't as familiar as perhaps we are with the voluntary carbon market model, like why are folks starting to pour a lot more money into this space and kind of what's the long-term pitch for making money off of forests in a different way? So I think that has been an interesting trend, very recent trend I've experienced in my career where I'm coming from working in the California compliance market where emitters in California are required by law to pay for their emissions. That was viewed as, as investable and there's institutional capital playing that market. At the time, and this is just a few years ago, voluntary carbon markets were really niche and highly volatile and not investable. Mm-hmm. So addressing the, the function and the value of the voluntary carbon market, first priority for all of us has to be reducing GHG emissions, greenhouse gas emissions, and decarbonizing supply chains. There's no question about that. Carbon offsets aren't a substitute for reducing emissions. And they're not a justification for delaying reductions in emissions. 
Right. Uh, but the fact remains that it's going to take many years to fully decarbonize the economy. And even then, some emissions will be very difficult to abate. And there's still going to be excess greenhouse gases in the atmosphere based on emissions that have occurred to date. So the value of the carbon market, in my view, is an efficient means to channel private capital into projects that remove carbon from the atmosphere while we work to decarbonize the economy. Mm -hmm. From the perspective of drone seed, we want to do as much climate resilient reforestation as we can. And that's expensive. And the voluntary carbon market is the only means to finance that at scale. And that's why it's of interest to us. Got it. Yeah. And I think also, you know, an important note for people that are getting up to speed on this too, is like you've getting a lot of activity on the demand side of the carbon market of companies or other entities saying like, yes, we do want to purchase credits. We want to participate in helping to scale this market and to, you know, use these towards meeting net zero targets or another commitment. All right. Yeah. Now that we have kind of a lay of the land, I think it'd be great to, you know, get a little bit deeper on drone seeds business and, and what you all have been up to. And you mentioned earlier kind of this idea of like vertically vertically integrated company and a vertically integrated approach to scaling reforestation. So let's kind of dive into that and kind of maybe walk through the parts that go into that vertically integrated stack one by one. Yeah, thank you. So as I mentioned, Drone Seed has built a first of its kind vertically integrated supply chain for reforestation that pairs traditional methods with uh, cutting edge seed collection technology, expansive nursery capacity, and drone technology to replant forests swiftly after wildfire. So we break it down into four pillars, four pillars of reforestation. Mm-hmm. It starts with seed, and that consists of collecting wild cone out in the woods, doing seed extraction, and then seed storage in our Silva Seed facility in Washington. I know that sounds boring, but there's actually a significant (laughs) shortage of tree seed, and that's going to become an increasing obstacle to reforestation at scale. So we we significantly ramped up seed collection to increase seed supply, and now we're operating the largest private seed bank in the Western U.S. Wow, interesting. Yeah, I didn't know that. To double-click on that really quickly, is the shortage because not enough people like yourself have focused on you know, building a business that includes that seed collection component, or are there other drivers that are driving that shortage? Yeah, confluence of factors. I think, in general, the, the reforestation part of the forestry industry has been just generally underinvested in and under scale. It's really scaled to meet the demand of just private industrial timber companies that are growing trees for lumber production. Got it. But now we're introducing with climate change net forest loss, the tune of millions of acres a year, and increased interest through the voluntary carbon markets in reforestation as a source of carbon removal. Constrained supply and increased demand are creating that bottleneck. Got it. Yeah. Well, that makes sense as to why, you know, part of the impetus for really wanting to own that process within the company, zone capabilities as well. Yeah. So first pillar is seeds. Second pillar is seedlings or baby trees. We're continually expanding our nursery capacity to grow millions of seedlings every year to address industry bottlenecks. Uh, landowners, foresters are having to wait one to two years to get seedlings. And we're expanding our seedling, our nursery capacity explicitly to address that lag so that we can respond to fires more quickly after they happen. Got it. 
So second pillar is seedlings. Third pillar is hand planting and aerial seeding. And this is, is really where we have the high-tech, uh, low-tech mashup. We use a combination of heavy lift drone swarms to drop seeds in hard to reach areas. And then we pair that with traditional use of hand planting of seedlings or baby trees with planters carrying backpacks of, of seedlings up and down deforestation sites. Got it. And do you think that'll always be a combination of high tech and low tech? Or do you all see kind of a, a future where using drones and the aerial seeding technology begins to become more predominant, the more experience you get? testing and using that methodology or is it always going to be a combination of the two i think it's going to be a combination of two for the foreseeable future and hand planting of seedlings is really important for reforestation particularly in the Mm. difficult post wildfire sites that we're working in but i think in forestry in general across the economy we're going to we'll continue to see advancements towards automation and new ways of doing things so there'll be a tipping point at some point but we the seedlings are still a very important part of what we're doing. And, uh, you know, we can probably get to this later on too, but I think in the name drone seed, people have this vision of the, you know, swarm of drones doing the aerial seeding. When did that idea first come about of using drones as a way to effectively do part of the kind of legwork for the reforestation? Um, Our founder, Grant Canary, uh, has got a deep background in sustainability. He is locked into the idea of tree planting as a route to scaling carbon removal. And he's a native Oregonian. So the backdrop for all this was more severe and larger wildfires every year. And in many cases, those forests were not regenerating on their own because the fires were so severe as damaging, eliminating the organic soil and the natural seed supply. So that's the problem we're facing. Need forests more than ever for the carbon removal and carbon storage they provide, but we're losing them faster than ever. And meanwhile, as we discussed, the seed supply and uh, reforestation supply chain is significantly constrained. So a hand planter of seedlings will burn on average the caloric equivalent of two marathons every day. (laughs) Jeez, And they have to do that day in, day out for an entire planting season, which will last many weeks or months. There's a limited number of people that are capable of doing that and they're interested in doing that. Their work is really important, but that is somewhat of a limitation to scale. And that's where the idea of using drones, aerial seeding to address that obstacle came from. Yeah, that makes a lot of sense. And in in exploring that, the learning was, well, actually the entire reforestation industry, reforestation supply chain is underscaled for the need. and so. Although we started with the concept of the drones, now we've built out the full vertically integrated model, as you and I have discussed. Yeah, and I know I stopped you at at pillar three of said vertically integrated model. So back on the trail, we can get to number four too. (laughs) Thank you. I'm I'm really glad to to visit the fourth pillar because it's the one that I'm focused on, which is carbon (laughs) finance. So we know we need to do reforestation. Drone Seeds built the supply chain to implement large reforestation projects at scale, but then you're left the problem of how to pay for it. Often after a wildfire, a private landowner may have no means to finance a reforestation project on their property. could easily cost several millions of dollars. Even a modestly sized project could be in the millions of dollars of cost. So we develop carbon offset projects in partnership with the landowner that use unique 
forward-looking offsets to pay for all those expensive upfront costs of reforestation, in addition to then providing a significant financial payment to the landowner generated from the sale of the offsets. And these are forests that would not otherwise be planted by and large or regenerate naturally because of the severity of the fire. And as part of the project, the landowner is agreeing to the implementation of a perpetual conservation easement on the property, which ensures that's permanently protected from development and it's permanently protected from clear-cut timber harvest. Got it. Yeah. And a lot of what you just kind of brought up started to answer or at least address some of the questions that I wanted to make sure we got to, you know, specifically around when it comes to carbon finance and carbon projects, there's often a lot of discussion of, you know, how do we know that this project or this carbon removal in question wouldn't have potentially happened on its own, especially in the case of a forest, you know, that exists out in the world already and, you know, potentially a deforestation prevention carbon offsetting project. Like that's a very different scenario where you have to prove this counterfactual of like this forest was an imminent threat of, you know, being logged or something. But it sounds like you all are focusing on a very different application that is more easily to prove that it's kind of additional, which is that forest is already burned down. No one's interested in replanting it without the injection of carbon finance here. And it's going to take a long time for a natural ecosystem to spring back up in this location. Is that kind of a right summary of the way that you think about some of all? Yeah, that's exactly right. I think an interesting dynamic that you're alluding to in, in voluntary carbon markets in the, in the last few years is, is an increasing preference on the part of offset buyers for offsets generated from carbon removals rather than offsets generated from projects that avoided additional emissions, mm-hmm. which includes what you were describing, a mature forest that would be protected in some way and would receive offsets, the developer would receive offsets in exchange, but that's based on this counterfactual of without the project, the forest would be locked. On our projects, these are they're very challenging sites. There's often no financial means and maybe no infrastructure to do the reforestation without drone seeds involvement and without the carbon offset project. Mm-hmm. So we think the additionality story of what we're doing is really compelling. Yeah, and to touch on a couple other, you know, components of all the different things that folks think of when developing projects and producing carbon credits, you also kind of pointed at another important piece of the consideration set, which is, you know, we're going to recreate this forest or help forest flourish in this area again. How do we make sure that that lasts for a long time? And so I'd love to just kind of talk about, you know, given that you're all are starting to help regrow these forests, like what are the plans for 10, 20, 50 years down the road to ensure that these things have longevity and and grow in a good way? It's a good question. And I think it calls attention to our work having both a mitigation and an adaptation element to it, um, climate resilient forests. So we're building forests for maximum climate resiliency and we expect them to survive if a fire returns to that landscape. Hmm. That means collecting wild seed, wild native seed with wider genetic diversity than the orchard seed that would be used in an industrial context. We are we're planting polycultures with species represented in each stand. And that's in contrast to industrial monocultures. And then we're also planting at lower densities 
So we're not really optimizing for maximum carbon sequestration. We're maximizing for climate resiliency. So lower densities that mimic uh, natural or historic stand structures that you would see prior to human intervention. And the end result there is a forest that's designed to survive the next drought and designed to survive the next fire. Got it. Yeah, that's refreshing because I think some folks, you know, have concern when they hear about reforestation products or projects that the incentive is to produce as many carbon credits as possible, whereas there's not always as much onus or emphasis on, you know, the durability of those carbon credits or, you know, the vitality of the forest itself. So taking kind of the converse approach sounds good. And I would say, I think that offset buyers are increasingly sophisticated and they're hip to the dynamic that you just described. And so this exact question comes up in most of those conversations that I'm having with buyers. They want to understand, Mm. is this forest going to be around in 50 years? And the answer is yes, because we are designing specifically for that. Yeah, and that's a good, that's kind of lead into, I'd love to hear more about like, what is the profile of the entity or person that you're having conversations with on the buy side? What are those organizations look like? What other types of interesting questions are those people asking? How have those conversations matured over the past few months? Yeah, so we're working primarily with corporate buyers that have made some kind of a net zero commitment or commitment to reduce emissions or offset emissions. Uh, Where we stand today, the voluntary carbon market is highly segmented and there are numerous methodologies and developers coming to the market all the time. And so it tends to be a very bespoke one-off sales process Mm. where smart buyers are doing pretty significant due diligence on developers, the methodology, and the project level. We think that's good because we're confident our approach stands up to that scrutiny. But I think as the market matures and we head towards a scale, hopefully in the tens of billions of dollars of offsets generated and transacted in a year, looking out to say 2030, offsets are going to need to be a bit more commoditized with a fewer number of accepted approaches because you you can't support a $40 billion a year market with the level of bespokeness that we're working with today. Yeah, that's a super interesting question and tension that comes up a lot. I was speaking with one of the co-founders of Patch who built kind of infrastructure to facilitate and support carbon projects and connect corporate buyers with that climate action. And yeah, it's difficult to know and to see whether it's something that could ever be as commoditized as like an oil or a corn market where you really truly do have a very standardized product and commodity or whether they'll need to be kind of still somewhat more bespoke because there's a lot of different ways to remove carbon from the atmosphere and there can be a lot of different characteristics around the cost of doing it with different methodologies and the durability of it. But yeah, I'll be very keen to see out to 2030 whether it's still not commoditized at all perhaps a little bit more commoditized, probably never all the way to like a, an oil or a corn contract, as I was alluding to. But yeah, it's always an interesting one to pick people's brains on whether they resist that commoditization or not. Yeah, I think, as you put it, some midpoint there where there's we need to be experimenting with and scaling all of the available methods of carbon removal. And so that's going to produce many different types of offsets 
So it'll never be as commoditized as an agricultural or an energy commodity, but hopefully a little more consolidated than it is today. And I mean, as I think about it even more, even with an agricultural commodity, there's still, you know, can be a decent amount of variance in that. I feel like let's take corn, for example, like that can still look pretty different based on where it was grown, how it was grown, all that different stuff. So clearly it's something that a lot of folks have already spent a long time thinking about in more traditional product settings. And maybe some of those people will start migrating over when they recognize the size of the opportunity. I think so. So to move to one more important piece of kind of the carbon credit production process, measurement and kind of reporting on the actual carbon removal data is a super important thing that folks have increasingly spending time thinking about, but also not always the most heavily invested component of the space when you think about dollars flowing to actual project developers, dollars flowing into purchasing carbon credits. I think in some cases, certainly the technology and the methods needed to really accurately represent how much carbon is being removed from the atmosphere can lag behind. I'm sure that's something that you're thinking about a lot. Talk to us about Drone Seed's approach to measurement and reporting. We're currently working under the Climate Action Reserve carbon offset methodology for reforestation. So a year after planting, the project is audited by an accredited third-party verifier. Mm -hmm. That one-year mark is really important because it's the first year when we expect to see the highest level of mortality of seedlings. So if they survive that first year when they're most vulnerable, they're very likely to survive into maturity. So the verifier is going out there, sampling the project, and specifically checking areas of the project that are most likely to be understocked. So they're most likely to have not enough surviving seedlings. And that's the best way to make sure that we're hitting our target seedling survival rate on the project. Got it. And then after the offsets are issued, uh, a conservation easement has been implemented on the project. We create using a carbon offset sale revenue, an endowment, a permanent endowment to fund the long-term monitoring and maintenance of that conservation easement. Increasingly, that is there are some remote sense-based products now specifically for that use case. And I would say generally, the forest industry, the nature-based carbon removal industry is headed towards remote-sensed methods, which is great. The more information we can gather for the least amount of cost, the more we can do. So that's exciting. There's certainly kind of a renaissance in that area of technology too, whether it's Earth observation data from satellites or other. It's like we used to send all these satellites into space and point them out at the rest of the universe as another podcast guest of mine said, but increasingly we're pointing them back at Earth to try to understand what's happening there too. Yeah, I love that. How does the quantification work? Is that a combination of modeling and hardware and on-the-ground observations. But when you're saying like, okay, this is what it looks like the success rate of our project is going to be in terms of trees that are going to survive, and this is how many we planted approximately, like, how do you get to a number of carbon credits that you feel comfortable in you know, crediting your own project with? So we're relying on the same types of forest growth and yield models that the timber industry has used for their forest management for decades, and and Got it. they present a conservative case of future carbon sequestration. So we're taking data collected from the project about seedling survival, 
inputs to the model would be the species of trees, the number surviving per acre, the site productivity, so like the, the capacity of the site to grow trees, among other factors. And, and then we will look at various growth scenarios projecting into the future for 100 years or more. And the way that the Climate Action Reserve climate forward methodology that we're using, which is an ex-ante methodology, it's a forward-looking methodology works, uh-huh. is we do that expensive upfront work of getting trees established on a post-wildfire site then that, that's verified by this third party, credited third party. All of our modeling and the, the information from the verifier is reviewed by the Climate Action Reserve. Mm. And then we're issued these ex-ante forward-looking offsets after they've reviewed that material and confirmed that we've correctly followed the methodology. So we're receiving offsets for the next 100 years of carbon sequestration from that forest. And that's really important. Because before the release of uh, the Climate Forward Reforestation program, there was not a viable way to finance all those expensive upfront costs. If it costs a couple thousand dollars an acre to do reforestation and you won't get paid back for some decades in the future, no reforestation is going to happen. So this methodology has really opened up opportunity for us to scale post-wildfire reforestation. Yeah, that's an important kind of link to make is, you know, there's a big time value of money challenge. If you're relying on waiting for a forest to mature for 20, 30 years, you probably know better than I certainly know better than I on how long that can actually take. And also a time value of carbon, you know, we need to start doing this work today and not certainly not delay. Yeah, and I would say it's less so the time value of money challenge, because if you look at forecasts for future prices for carbon removals, 10, 20, 30 years out, those prices are really high. So even taking those into account and a appropriate discount rate, the ex-ante units that we're able to create today are a good value. It's more so that the financial structures don't exist to, to finance. No one wants to enter a futures agreement for 20 or 30 years out. So buyers want buyers have budget for 2022 and 2023. Exactly. <laughs> so given this kind of unlock around forward financing, I'd love to just hear some examples of, you know, where y'all are boots on the ground doing this work and some success stories, perhaps. Sure. Our flagship project is in Western Oregon, in a severely burned, very difficult site. And implementing a climate forward reforestation carbon project on that site has enabled the landowner to pay for reforestation that we've done that they wouldn't have otherwise. And that's going to have, in addition to the carbon removal benefit generated by that, there's numerous co-benefits. It's an important watershed. The new forest will provide important wildlife habitat. So that's an exciting story. And we're currently working on projects in California, Montana, and elsewhere. Nice. They all have slightly different narratives. But they're all this post-wildfire story where carbon finance is allowing landowners to reforest properties that would otherwise probably convert to brush field or some other non-forest cover type. Fantastic. And it is such an important part of the story that even if you know a lot of the finance is happening based on carbon calculations, there are a ton of other co-benefits, obviously, to restoring a forest, whether for 
humans and the communities involved or all other species. I guess from a business model perspective, is it more that you work with the landowners and the owners of work with the landowners, provide the service to them and take a portion of the proceeds from the carbon credit sales? Or are there also cases where it's like we're going to basically like become the project developer in this area? Our core product is a reforestation carbon finance and development service. We pay for and implement the reforestation. And that can mean we're doing cone collection, seed collection on behalf of that landowner, growing seedlings, preparing seeds to be deployed Uh by drone, doing the planting, doing all the carbon quantification, work with the verifier, work with the registry, and then marketing and selling the offsets on behalf of the landowner. And then we share revenue at the end, which keeps our incentives aligned to develop a good project and ensure good prices for the landowner's offsets. There are real asset investment models of doing this, Mm -hmm. certainly. Um, Those would typically be more focused on mature forests Mm -hmm. and developing improved forest management or conservation type carbon projects. We're doing it on third-party lands, which should be more scalable. So we're not spending capital and time trying to buy land. We're focused purely on the reforestation and the carbon finance piece to pay for the reforestation. And looking ahead to 2023, you know, what are some of the perhaps additions you want to make to the platform to expand business or expand the offerings? Uh, or what are some kind of constraints that you're bumping up against that you know, you're keen on solving? And these can be really tactical too. It could be like, we need more people to do the hand planting. You know, that strikes me as something that we've already discussed. Yeah, I think for us, there's important market education work to do about our offset product, explaining what it is, how we generate these forward-looking offsets, and what are appropriate uses for them. And uh, we've got all the reforestation and carbon capability ready to go. And we're now feeding pipeline into that funnel. But reforestation is hard work. We're not, it's not a SaaS product. So it just, it, it takes years to get plantations established and the carbon project developed. So we're really in a place of, of executing on this strategy using the vertically integrated supply chain that we've built. Yeah, getting your hands dirty. Good stuff. A lot of folks that you know come through the Keep Cool Orbit and people who may be listening, I think are often pretty keen on getting involved and helping in their own capacity. What are some you know teams, could be your own, that Drone Seed is actively hiring for or are the people that are really ambitious as their room to come in and help with the hand planting? <laughs> Yeah, well, our career page on our website, DroneSeed.com, would have all the the current roles we're hiring for. I know that there's some interesting forestry and tree nursery roles on there. So if there's any foresters out there listening, please check us out. Yeah. And I just know it's been very cool to see the sort of response as we've seen layoffs in the technology industry the last few weeks of the climate industry organizing opportunities for those folks that are now in, in job searches. So saw an interesting career page for climate ped pledge companies, climate draft, climate base. There's a lot, lot of great resources out there for people interested in entering the climate space. Absolutely. No shortage of opportunity and, uh, and of need. Um, I think, you know, around the question of people thinking about entering the climate space and thinking about what they w- might want to do, in general, 
I'd like to see more people working on this supply side problem of how do we create more quality carbon removal offsets, whether that's developing nature-based projects like drone seeds or engineered technologies. Right. There are a lot of marketplaces and SaaS products that have come up. And no doubt there's a great need for that. And a lot of those products are going to make my job much easier and drone seeds business more scalable. So I'm excited about that. But I do think the limited supply of quality removals is the biggest constraint to growing the, the voluntary carbon market. Mm. So someone has to plant the trees. You know, in drone seeds case, that's literal trees. But if you allow me like met- metaphorical trees in the form of other biological engineered uh, carbon removal solutions are really important. So um, I would direct people towards that part of the supply chain for carbon removal. Nice. Yeah, I love that call to action and to continue using metaphors. It is always very attractive and I can see why. And it's also more easily venture backable to build kind of your pickaxe for any industry, if you mm-hmm. will, or some tool that makes project developers' life easier. But as you said, we need folks to pick up the pickaxe itself and do the mining of the tree planting. And yeah, it's a good note to close on. Jonathan, thanks so much for joining. It's been a pleasure. Thank you, Nick. I really enjoyed the conversation. Thanks for tuning in. So you don't miss the next episode on another cutting edge climate tech, make sure to subscribe on Spotify, Apple, Google, or wherever it is that you get your podcasts. And to get even deeper, you can sign up for my newsletter on workweek.com. We'll see you soon.